This is Blood Cancer Talks podcast. So Blood Cancer Talks is a podcast that's exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring in content experts who live and breathe a particular topic, for example a particular disease area or a particular treatment area and we focus on the latest clinical advances and the biology of that disease. We take critical appraisal very seriously and we hope to bring nuance into the into our discussions. Today, Ashwin and I are honored to introduce our new co-host, Dr. Edward Cliff. Dr. Cliff is a hematology registrar in Australia, and he's currently pursuing a research fellowship at the Program for Regulation, Therapeutics and Law, or Portal, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cliff has an interest in lymphoid malignancies, including CLL, lymphoma, as well as multiple myeloma, and he has a unique interest at the intersection of hematology and policy. Dr. Cliff would be a great addition as a co-host in our podcast, and I hope he will bring some unique perspectives. Thanks, Raj, and thanks for having me on. I look forward to, to being part of the podcast. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest for today, um, uh, Dr. Toby Eyre. Uh, Toby is a, uh, based Hi, at the University of Oxford in the UK, and Toby's an expert in both CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and lymphoma. Toby undertook much of his hematology training in Oxford and now leads the CLL and low-grade lymphoma service there. Uh, Toby completed his doctorate on the topic of early phase clinical trials and biomarker studies in lymphoma uh, and lymphoid malignancies and uh, is serves on the UK's National Cancer Research Institute uh, lymphoma groups. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for our Ash Highlights episode today. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I thought it'd be great to start uh, sort of almost at the end and work backwards and start with uh, CLL and the Alpine trial. Um, so mm. as many listeners will know, uh, Alpine was a randomized, a randomized phase three trial comparing zanabrutinib with ibrutinib in patients with relapse refractory uh, CLL. It was presented in the late breaking abstracts session, um, which suggested that zanabrutinib showed an improved progression-free survival as well as improved safety compared to ibrutinib. Um, if you had access to zanabrutinib, would this spell the end of ibrutinib for you, uh, Toby, and CLL? <laughs> That's a great question. To be honest, I think the Elevate RR study already spelled the end of ibrutinib for me primarily because I think that that demonstrated a calibrutinib was equally efficacious and superior from a broad safety profile point of view. I mean, I think this this study in many respects goes one step further because it demonstrates, as you just mentioned, Eddie, a, a progression-free survival advantage and, in, and an improved cardiac safety profile um, for zanabrutinib, second-generation BTK inhibitor um, versus ibrutinib in a lower-risk patient population than we've seen with the Elevate RR study and with other previous randomized clinical trials. So, um, yes, I think really ibrutinib as monotherapy in relapsed CLL has really uh, come to the end of its natural life, let's put it that way. Um, and I think really then the discussion primarily is a choice between zanabrutinib and acalabrutinib, of course, um, based around um, access of those agents as well, of course. But um, given all, all, all things considered and all choices, I think it's a toss up between those two. And uh, venetoclax doesn't doesn't figure into your sort of upfront calculation there in in a world where you have access. No, no, absolutely. I think in relapsed CLL, I think I guess I'm talking about a choice between BTK inhibitors if somebody wants to pursue a BTK inhibitor rather than fixed duration venetoclax plus CD20 antibody therapy in relapsed disease, of course, which is the Murano trial as a sort of yeah. broadly approved um, kind of protocol there. 
Um, but no, absolutely. I think the first discussion is sort of continuous therapy versus fixed duration, BCL2 versus BTK. But then within the BTK treated patients, t- to my mind, it's 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 about, uh, you know, it will be in the future, I suspect. It's a bit of an embarrassment of riches, really, that we now face with CLL, which is fantastic for our patients. Mm. But it, but it's it's really a color versus anabrutinib in, in my mind. So one of the questions I think some people would have about the um, Alpine trial is that obviously there was a higher number of patients in the abrutinib arm uh, who discontinued because of adverse events, particularly um, cardiac adverse events, particularly AF uh, and ventricular Mm -hmm. arrhythmias. Do you think that toxicity explains the whole PFS difference or you think there's a true (laughs) efficacy signal there as well? Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question and i sort of you know in, in some ways you take a step back and the 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 answer is you know who cares because at the end of the day there's a pfs advantage that's what biogene will care about that's what they'll market um yeah i mean i think if you sort of dig down into the sort of nitty-gritty of the data which of course the likes of me like to do um i i suspect um there's some early discontinuations due to abrutinib either for cardiac reasons or for other reasons or even potentially for practical and pragmatic reasons, depending on the access of second-generation BTK inhibitors outside of clinical studies. Certainly, I definitely believe that the threshold for discontinuation of Ibrutinib in 2020 was is so much higher than it was, for example, five years earlier. And I think that does influence the discontinuation rates and you know, potentially influences that early separation of the curves. You know, the Ibrutinib arm is doing extremely poorly, uh, considering it's a one, it's a first relapse study. Effectively, there's a median of one prior line of therapy, and the the median progression-free survival in the patients, relatively few, of course, but the 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 patients who were in the Resonate study who had one prior line of therapy was 66 months. So 35 months versus 66 months, you know, big big, big differential there. Um, I think there are clearly some sort of hard endpoints. Um, you know, some of those cardiac toxicities are clearly well described and, and concerning but I suspect there's a number of patients for example that stop because of atrial fibrillation that may historically have not stopped ibrutinib um, and I suspect those patients were just sort of left off therapy for a while given a treatment break and may have progressed with a liver cytosis and gone on to something else um, maybe a second gen BTK or, or, or whatever it's hard to be sure we don't have subsequent lines of therapy data, which I think is really important in interpreting the ibrutinib arm. And we don't also have time to discontinuation of ibrutinib. And I do wonder whether the median time to discontinuation with the ibrutinib arm is actually a lot shorter than the xanabrutinib arm, because actually these patients are not going to stop xanabrutinib unless they really have to. And I guess that's one of the issues with an open label clinical trial. You're always going to have this sort of theoretical kind of sort of unseen bias that can exist. But um difficult to sort of mitigate against that and of course you know companies and i don't exclusively pick out biogen here but you know the acala study is similar um uh, the the elevate rr study if they're open labeled and the patients know what they're getting um and the trial is sort of sold in a particular way then that that will have some influence over over therapy um or uh, over people's therapeutic choice subsequently but I have to say also, not everywhere in the in the world, just to be fair for this study, not everywhere in the world would have, of course, had availability of, you know, acalabrutin, for example, in routine clinical practice. I mean, they, there's a lot of Eastern European recruitment. Poland outstripped everybody um, in their recruitment. They, they often do, actually. Um, uh, so, my, my, and I actually don't know about their access, but I, 
I'm relatively sure during the study they wouldn't have had a calibrutinib access outside of outside of trials. So um, I don't think I don't think those biases sort of exist everywhere, but I'm sure they have some influence over these results. Yeah, absolutely. There's this weird paradox where it's almost becoming easier for some pharma companies to run trials in places that have less access. Oh, access. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know if if that's a hundred percent the case, I think any study of, for example, targeted inhibitor versus chemotherapy that is running at present will be running in nations that don't have a calorand and 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 venobin um, frontline available because they'll be the places where they can run. So I think you'll find, for example, some of the pertubrutinib studies that are ongoing, you know, BR versus pertubrutinib or, or equivalent, you know, Sequoia maybe over recent years, uh, that they all run in nations where where you can't access a calor or, or, or veno, not exclusively, but the majority of these patients for, for kind of obvious recruitment reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So of the kind of cohort with uh, TP53 aberrations, they seem to do, you know, kind of a little bit worse on ibrutinib, but 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 even better on zanibrutinib. Do you do you do you think that that's a, a real signal? Is that sort of zanibrutinib now your your go to choice for someone with TP fifty three mutated CLL? Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I mean it's a subgroup. It's an unplanned subgroup, and or it's a, it's a planned subgroup analysis, but it's still a small number, relatively small number of patients. The ibrutinib arm's doing quite a lot worse than I would expect. Maybe these patients are stopping for the variety of reasons. It's just they have their events that much more quickly. Um, I, I, I wouldn't look at that subgroup particularly and say, oh, that's Zanu, I'd do for Zanu over a calor. I'd, I'd, I'd find that hard to sort of, sort of, you know, um, provide a strong rationale for that. But I think, you know, the data's pretty strong and certainly supports the use. I wouldn't criticize anybody who used Zanu to, to be honest, for, for pretty much anybody with, with relapsed CLL now. I, I think it's, it's a very reasonable, reasonable choice. And uh, if I may pitch in, I mean, in Waldenstrom's also, we have the phase three Aspen trial comparing Zanabrutinib to Ibrutinib. And that has, I, I think, shown similar safety data. It was a non-inferiority trial and showed superior cardiac safety. So in Waldenstrom's, you know, which I have some patients of Waldenstrom in my clinic, mm-hmm. and we almost have switched completely to Zanabrutinib from Ibrutinib in, in clinical practice in the US, uh, most of us. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, we've done the same. And I, I, I do. I, my personal feeling is, it is a better BTK inhibitor. I suppose I'm just sort of picking apart why I think the difference that we've seen in the trial maybe not be as sort of big as actually maybe we expected or or think might be sort of a, a real phenomenon versus all the other aspects at play. But I totally agree. I mean, we use Zanabrutinib routinely for our WM patients, and you know, you've got to applaud. Bygene for doing big randomized trials, going head to head with a brutinib. I mean, it's it's a bold move and it's paying off um, actually, and they'll they'll have a they'll have a large market share in in WM for sure, and also increasingly for CLL. Um, so yeah, um, you know, AstraZeneca have some sort of thinking to do about their marketing strategy going forward. Um, but what is what is interesting is actually if you look at the tox profile, there's a very striking difference in atrial fibrillation. Actually, in aspen there is, in 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 alpine there is, um, but actually across the broad toxicity profile, it looks very similar to ibrutinib. You're not actually seeing reductions in diarrhea, arthralgia, myalgia, rash, etc. Whereas you do or, or see that, or even hypertension, or even hypertension. So the best drug for hypertension is a calibrutinib by far. Yeah, and it's very striking, Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. The the hypertension rates are identical. Um, so really, from a safety point of view, they've really only got that cardiac, you know, arrhythmia, um, 
AE profile as the advantage. And you'll note within the New England Journal paper, it's very careful with its wording about how it describes its own safety profile benefits, because actually across the board, it's not. So so acalabrutinib is, a, is probably <laughs> the safest drug overall, um, other than atrial fibrillation, which I think xanabrutinib wins with across the board, if you look at all the studies that have been done. But if you want the safest BTK inhibitor, I think Acala is probably the safest in the absence of head-to-head data, kind of picking apart studies from different 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 angles. So that, that I suppose, is the strategy AstraZeneca will have to sort of employ, that they have the, safe, they have the safest BTK inhibitor, and there's, there's, there's hardly hardly likely to be an OS benefit in, in any of these studies that we've seen of BTK mm. versus BTK. So then it's about sort of safety and quality of life and patient experience, and you can see how that sort of plays into the mix. So I don't think ACALA's in sort of that much trouble, um, and they'll also go hard on frontline use because if everybody uses ACALA frontline, then nobody cares about Alpine. So there we go. That's that's the other that's the other part of it. So um, to be honest, yeah, Acala has a slight advantage in that that certainly a lot of Europe and the US have used a lot more acalabrutinib than zanabrutinib over over the last say five years or so because of the clinical trials and where they've been run and early access programs and so forth. And I think that's that that will play into people's sort of decision making at least here of course australia is a bit different actually isn't it um more zanabrutinib more trial experience there um so i think that will count for something in terms of where people use wh- which of those agents they use but it's i can see i can see this being sort of like a a debate at different societies you know zanabrutinib versus acalabrutinib a sort of you know <laughs> you know um you know, voting before and after that kind of stuff, you know. Yes, almost coffee he- versus tea, you know. He- hematologists love these kind of things, don't they? But I mean, they're both very good drugs and they're both very valuable. And, yeah. you know, we're we're fortunate to be picking apart some of these some of these sort of smaller issues, I suppose. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you next about combination therapies. We saw updated results from the CLL2 trial, which combines abinutuzumab, ibrutinib and venetoclax for... TP53 aberrant newly diagnosed CLL. And we also saw uh, results from the AVO trial, which is a calibrutin of venetoclax plus abinutuzumab for a cohort which was 60% TP53 aberrant. Yeah, yeah. Um, both with very good uh, three year um, mm-hmm. results. Um, I wonder what your key takeaways are from these updated triplet data and whether you think ultimately the triplet strategies will be what we use in the high risk CLL. Or you think you know still that sequence will, will end up winning out? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I, th- there are some sort of there's the data and there's the sort of practical aspects to delivery and access, of course. So a lot of these studies are kind of modest size academic studies. They're of interest, of course, and you know, unsurprisingly, if you give this com- these combinations to relatively selected, fit, fairly young patients at um, academic centres. Um, you're going to get good results. Um, the applicability of a triplet, I think, more broadly is is difficult. And there's a big open question about whether you really need a triplet in most patients. I mean, you've got to remember most patients with CLL are 75 and over, and they, they will clearly just do fine and have a normalized um, age and gender matched life expectancy to the normal population when they have a covalent and non-covalent BTK inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor sequenced over 15 years. So I think we must remember that, that that's actually the majority of patients fit into that camp. 
I, I think in younger patients with high risk genetics, you know, there may be a role in the future. Um, I have to say, I would like to see sort of randomized data of doublet versus triplet, because I think, you you know, like with anything, you add more toxicity when you add um, a triplet. I think Obin, a brutinib, Ven, I think is unlikely to gain great traction because um, I just can't see why people would want to use ibrutinib in that kind of setting when second generation BTK inhibitors are developed in combination. Now, of course, they've been developed because of sort of historical reasons and, you know, the availability of the drug in clinical studies. Um, but to my mind, I don't really see a future for that triplet. Yeah, fixed duration triplet with a second generation BTK inhibitor in venetoclax, maybe. I'd still want to see you know, doublet versus triplet studies. I think it's a little bit, I mean, the abrut, just to kind of sort of sidetrack, the the Nitin Jane's data of ibrutinib and venetoclax in P53 deleted younger patients, like the four-year PFS is 90% with that doublet. Um, and that's sort of MRD-driven fixed duration. Most people stopped at two years. That's amazingly good for a super high-risk group of patients. Again, it'll be selected and all the rest of it. But even so... I think that's a high bar to, to 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 beat, and of course, there's a financial aspects to it. I'm not going to sort of bore all your viewers with money, but I mean, it, you know, it's extraordinarily unaffordable for most places around the world. And so, whilst you might be looking at a triplet in sort of selected places where you can sort of pick and mix your medication and you can you have a bit more freedom, um, this is not the reality for much of the globe. Um, and so I just do not see those triplets really moving forward into into approved kind of combinations combinations that we can sort of broadly use in our clinics all the time. Um, maybe it's my sort of socialist European or English hat on, but I mean I think that's 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 that I think is the reality. And they're all super expensive drugs. A triplet, I just don't think I don't think it's necessary because what you're doing with that is you're driving a surrogate of a surrogate of a surrogate, and you've got to remember that. You're driving MRD, which is a surrogate of PFS, which is a surrogate of OS, um, and you're and you're introducing more toxicity, and you're probably not improving people's overall survival. You need to be very careful about how these how these things are sort of taken in in context. And I think the biggest the biggest the biggest study actually that we've seen over recent years that has sort of proven this point is actually the GLOW study. Um, the toxicity that you see with even that doublet in older people, you've got to be super careful with. And we've seen that example actually from Waldenstrom's. Um, from the, the Dana-Farber study where we've seen that doublet cause real problems of cardiac toxicity um, in, in WM. There might be something specific about WM, of course, but e even so, the signal is there in another in another clinical trial of ibrutinib, versus, uh, ibrutinib and venetoclax. So, yeah, I'm sort of slightly going around the houses. I'm ba basically saying that the triplets, I think, are intriguing, but I don't really see them necessarily moving forward in the absence of randomised data. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's music to my ears as someone who works on drug pricing and trial endpoints. I, I couldn't agree with you. you. And also coming from a uh, almost as socialist drug pricing <laughs> country as, as the UK um, uh, in Australia. And I was actually going to ask you about the Dana-Farber-Waldenstrom's data the next, just to build on what yeah, you sure. said. Do you, do you think that, 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 you know, it's obviously a small trial of 45 patients where four patients had ventricular arrhythmias, including two fatal events. Do you think that is just bad luck in a small trial population, or do you think yeah. venetoclax is actually adding cardiac toxicity to a group? I, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think it's bad luck. 
um, you know, if you've got a small trial and you have a small number of events, you know, clearly the confidence intervals for those events, the odds ratios, etc., or hazard ratios are, you know, very, very large. Um, it's hard to know. I mean, we haven't seen monoth- we haven't seen monotherapy data with ibrutinib showing that same kind of cardiac signal. Whether they were unlucky and had a couple of patients who had undiagnosed kind of cardiac amyloid or or, or something. Um, that that would be my sort of thought my my question actually if i had been in that session and not going to watch england lose to france was um would have been did these patients have autopsies and did you find amyloid in their heart um because that to my mind would be the first thing to kind of think about i i personally think these these this, it's a little bit unlucky but you know we've seen a signal um, of that combination, as, as I mentioned, in GLOW, we've seen a signal. I think you've just got to be super careful. Whether venetoclax itself is adding specifically to that, it's hard to know. But it does, when you add venetoclax to a brutinib, you get more cytopenias, you get more infections. So people will be more anemic, they'll get more hospitalization. There are more sort of other triggers for theoretical arrhythmias, rather than it being a sort of specific drug related combination issue i don't really see it we've seen no cardiac talks with venetoclax per se as far as i know in the literature across the board but the combination is more toxic than the monotherapy so it may be that um i don't know but either way the the combinations had its day in warden's drums i think absolutely now um, i had more questions about col but i want to have <laughs> time to, to chat, chat about some uh, other lymphomas as well so i want to ask about uh, follicular lymphoma next and mm. um, the watch and wait trial presented by michael northend was uh, 12 and a half years of follow-up for 460 patients with asymptomatic low tumor burden grade one to three a follicular lymphoma who were randomized between watch and wait or rituximab induction or rituximab induction plus rituximab maintenance now, the authors of this study concluded that early treatment with rituximab should now be considered a standard option for patients with asymptomatic low treatment burden uh, FL. And uh, uh, a certain influential hematologist on Twitter said that this might, or suggested that this might spell the end of watch and wait for follicular lymphoma. I wonder what your interpretation <laughs> of, of this data is like. Yeah. I think that's a great question, and I, I would, to be fair to Mike, who I know, who I know fairly well, he was fairly careful with the wording of that that conclusion. He did say option rather than standard of care, you know. So he sort of said you can throw this into the mix. Um, I, I I think this is a nuanced discussion with patients actually. So I mean, I suppose that there may be some sort of older patients who you might want to consider giving four doses of rituximab so they never have to see chemotherapy in their lifetime. I suppose that is an option. You know, you know you'll give them 10 years on average, free from the uh, need for, well, I suppose immunochemotherapy, although we've got to remember that actually 10 years from now, we're not going to be using immunochemotherapy in the frontline setting of FL. Probably we might be, but I suspect as we'll come on to, there may be better drugs on in the pipeline um so so to my mind to my mind it is a discussion with patients i think what the study the long-term follow-up does is it certainly gives kind of credence to the idea of giving people four doses of rituximab minimal toxicity you're not inducing any sort of secondary problems people aren't you know living any less or any more, of course, but all the all the other secondary endpoints look all pretty equivalent across the board. So, to my mind, if you've got somebody who's like super anxious about the idea of watch and wait, um, 
or um, for whatever reason you think they you really don't want to give them chemotherapy, then you might think about giving them four doses of rituximab. I think it I think it's a reasonable option, but I certainly wouldn't say you'd. I, I'm not going to start giving it to all my patients. You still got 28%, I think it is, of people at 10 years and beyond who never need treatment. If anything, that's slightly higher than we historically thought. We thought oh, it's probably somewhere around, um, somewhere around 20%. Of course, that you know you're enrolling patients with low burden disease here, so you're enriching for a group of patients who, sort of by definition, don't meet any kind of GELF criteria. Um, but um, 28% is a decent percentage. You, I think you might take your chances, particularly with kind of COVID around, and you know, you know, none of us kind of know fully know what's going to happen from a kind of COVID point of view in terms of in terms of strains, you know, in the next kind of couple of years, etc. So um, maybe giving somebody four doses of rituximab might not be not, might not be the right thing to do. And the thing is, I suppose I'm slightly arguing against myself here, but. Actually, the people who you want to give four doses to to avoid giving chemotherapy to in the future are those who might be a little bit more frail, a bit more elderly, might get more problems with rituximab. So there's a kind of other side to that as well. But I also think there might be these, I mean, we all see these patients as sort of super anxious people, um, people who are the idea of watch and wait sort of terrifies them. They don't like the phrase watch and wait, neither do I actually. I prefer kind of active observation. But either way, you know, so the, the name of the study probably isn't something we should sort of repeat too often. But um, but, but but either way, you know, the idea of active observation really sort of petrifies people. They psychologically kind of, you know, fall apart. Those patients, I think, are actually perfectly suited to, to four doses of rituximab. And we all see these people from time to time in our clinic. And, you know, I, I kind of have some sympathy with it. You know, to be told you've got a incurable malignancy that's not going to be treated, I think is quite a hard concept to get your head around um, uh, for some patients. Uh, so I think for that group, actually, the quality of life measures, you know, we can debate whether they're sort of robust measures, but they were improved in 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 the patients who had rituximab monotherapy. So... Yeah, why not in those patients? I, I think you know they may be people who might benefit. Um, so interesting, yeah. I also found it interesting that eighteen percent of patients had a spontaneous complete remission uh, at some point in, in the ten years, which also gives you an idea of sort of how uh, this sort of follicular lymphoma can can wax and wane. Absolutely. Um, I I wanted to ask you next about kind of the patient, the follicular lymphoma patient who you've decided that you do think needs treatment, whether based on GELF or, or some other mm-hmm. kind of hematological gestalt. But um, John Leonard presented the updated augment data of lenalidomide plus rituximab or R squared versus R placebo. And of note that it, it, at five and a half years of follow-up, it no, now shows an overall survival benefit with a hazard ratio of, of 0.59. I don't know if you've got access to lenalidomide for lymphoma. In, yeah, we do actually. It's, um, do? it's nice approved based on this study. So yes, it is available. So then my question is, how do you choose in someone who you've decided that you do want to give therapy to, how do you make a decision between single agent rituximab, R-Bender, R-Chop, R-Squared, and, and you know, in, in, in your kind of frontline um, follicular lymphoma patient? Yeah, great question. So, so, so we have access to R-Squared in relapsed follicular lymphoma. Um, so in the frontline setting, outside of clinical trials, we are still using um, immunochemotherapy. Um, you know, and the bar is fairly high there uh, with, you know, bendamustin generally in the under 70s with with rituximab or abinutuzumab, depending on sort of people's fitness and and so forth. 
um, based obviously on the gallium data. In, in older patients, we in the UK still tend to occasionally use RCVP or OCVP more commonly. Um, R squared obviously has been used a fair amount in other parts of Europe. The, the French have used it a lot, but but we haven't had sort of access to that combination in the frontline setting, but we have in relapsed disease. There, I would say there's been a debate in the UK about where best to use that and who best to use that for. Do you use it in um, younger patients at first relapse? Do you save it for um, a group of sort of higher risk patients who are maybe sort of double exposed, um, third line and beyond? Uh, I tend to use, I tend to use it in those who are kind of older, um, who may not be sort of auto candidates or trial candidates. I tend to use it in sort of third line and beyond otherwise. I, I personally think the augment study um, studies a patient population that I don't recognize um, fundamentally. Uh, I think the control arm is clearly insufficient and therefore the meaning of the overall survival is irrelevant in my view. Um, the only reason there's an overall survival benefit is because there was a, a genuine straw man's control arm with rituximab monotherapy that, that nobody uses. Um, now, I like John Lennon a lot. I think he's fantastic, but he caveated his presentation by talking about that before he even got into the data. <laughs> he introduced the study by talking about rituximab monotherapy primarily in his introduction. Kind of shows, sh kind of speaks for itself, really. Um, the fact that so it was kind of almost preempting the kind of obvious question, which is, you know, why, why was this ever chosen? Um, I think we all know that industry aims to deliver the the worst possible control arm they can get away with from a leg regulatory point of view generally um we've seen multiple examples of that but there's there's good you know, there's good reason for that that's a systemic issue it's not necessarily industry being the fundamental problem there that's kind of you know wider 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 issues at play there um, but I think this is a good example of that. And I, I, I actually think the Magnify study is a far better example of a kind of patient population. You might actually use this combination, a higher risk group, double exposed, third line and beyond, non-transplant eligible, not, you know, not kind of maybe trial fit. But I'd also say that R squared will have its day because quite honestly, the bispecifics plus lenalidomide will be far superior to it. We know the results of those randomized trials before they're even done, quite frankly. I mean, I know we have to do them, but they're all using R squared as a control arm, which is fine, actually, because that probably is a relevant used control arm. But pretty much all the bispecifics are using lenalidomide in combination with their you know, with their bispecific in relapsed follicular lymphoma with R squared as a control arm, those studies will all be positive. You've heard it here first. <laughs> or probably not. Probably lots of people have said it already. But, you know, I think that's I, I think that's the reality. So I think R squared will have its day um, in follicular lymphoma. But we, we use it for now occasionally. I don't think that study is sort of a knock your socks off study. I wasn't overwhelmed by it, you know, two and a bit years or whatever it was from from r squared is you know it's fine it's okay absolutely we, we can rename this podcast the toby's trial prediction <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> um no don't because so, i'll just get it wrong more often than not <laughs> so well, i mean you'll be very rich from industry's point of view if you can predict what, what, what the results of trials will be 
Um, I want to next ask you about the Triangle trial, which I thought was a really great trial that Martin Dryling presented in the plenary session done by the European Mantle Cell Lymphoma Network. Um, now, they had three arms to this trial for fit patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma. One arm was the addition of ibrutinib to alternating RCHOP and RDHAPIN, and during the RCHOP um, cycles of, of treatment. The second arm was the addition of ibrutinib. Um, well, one arm was ibrutinib with an autologous transplant, one was ibrutinib without an autologous transplant, and the third arm was no ibrutinib but with an autologous transplant. Uh, and then uh, the two arms with ibrutinib got two years of ibrutinib, uh, what they termed ibrutinib maintenance. Uh, interestingly, at, at 31 months of follow-up, um, the autographed with no ibrutinib arm or the A arm that they labelled it did not show superiority over the ibrutinib arm uh, in terms of the endpoint that they defined as failure-free survival, um, where the autologous transplant arm had an FFS of 72%, whereas the ibrutinib arm had an FFS of 86%. I wonder whether you think that this is the end of autologous transplant upfront in mantle cell lymphoma. <laughs> That's a great question. I think this trial um, should change practice. Um, whether it will or not will depend on on sort of um regulatory and funding decisions you know outside of our control but i think you know this is the strongest data to date to show you that you can replace auto with um ibrutinib um given in the way it was given so it's given kind of quite cleverly it was given in induction with the rchop to minimize toxicity wasn't given with the dhap and then obviously given for fixed duration maintenance rather than continuous so a couple of sort of smart moves there to sort of minimize the additional toxicity of a drug that we know has some toxicity issues um whilst sort of retaining retaining the efficacy that we've seen and um and i and i think you know it's it may well end up being a cost effective thing to give um i don't know how much autologous transplant costs in the us or in australia or wherever but um you know you're clearly looking at large sums of money for that process and uh, you know a lot of additional toxicity for patients and so i i think it may well be that 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 ibrutinib is actually relatively easy to prove that it's cost effective here which i think might be a really kind of key 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 point um Obviously, the, the trial is relatively complex from a statistical point of view, and we probably don't have time to go into all the details about it. But, 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 but in essence, in essence, I think that 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 inability to show that an auto is superior to ibrutinib, and actually the reverse is probably true. I can't sort of prove that, but the ibrutinib arms are are looking superior to the no ibrutinib arm. And actually, if you use ibrutinib after an auto, you get quite a lot more toxicity and it looks like there's no additional benefit to it. So I think the auto probably goes. Um, yeah, I think that it, it represents potentially a, a step change. So whether, for example, the SHINE study will provide the sort of immunochemotherapy with ibrutinib sort of label, and then there'll be an extended label based on this study. I think that's the kind of obvious thing to to do i i suspect there's a discussion ongoing with um the the leaders of this trial and you know the european regulatory um uh, medicines authority and hopefully with the fda as well, well we'll see um it it to my mind i i would change practice sort of tomorrow if i could partly i'm reassured by the fact that i know the overall survival 
analysis is immature, but actually it certainly doesn't look like there's any issue with giving ibrutinib in terms of influencing people's overall survival in the longer term. I'm sort of thinking about, you know, re-exposure to covalent BTK inhibitors and those kind of open questions that this leads to. And of course, this isn't the only study where covalent BTK inhibitors are being given as fixed duration therapy in mantle cell lymphoma in the frontline setting. So we're going to need to know whether you can reuse covalent BTK inhibitors subsequently after fixed duration. And we're sort of seeing the safety and efficacy data, early data with CLL, but we need to see it in mantle cell in, in the future. So hopefully we'll get that from this study with longer follow-up. Um, so yeah, I think the bottom line is, you know, will we have the option to use it? And if we would, then I, I would use it. The final thing to say is if you use ibrutinib in people who are 57 rather than 72, it's safer. Um, that's really important because obviously Shine's not been a great study from a toxicity point of view and has had its problems. And that, to my mind, is about not only the chemotherapy backbone and maybe a bit about the design of the study and the fact that it was given continuously, but actually it's the age and the fitness of these patients as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this trial was a good example in many ways. Um, the 80% crossover to ibrutinib in the um, ASCT, ibrutinib, uh, ASCT arm and the fact that they added rituximab maintenance uh, midway through the trial when that became approved um, yeah. both stood out to me as good you know, examples of how to, how to do a trial well. Um, I wonder yeah. what you thought of the fact that, you know, only 26% of, as far from what I could tell of patients seem to have key 67 scores over 30%, whether you think that um, influences how you read the trial at all. What percentage, sorry? I, I, from my reading of the slides, it looked like only 26% of patients had high key 67 um, scores, which I know is just one marker of uh, the kind of aggressiveness of mantle cell lymphoma. Yeah, I mean, I... I sort of take that on face value, really. I mean, I think we know that the key 67 sort of pathology reviewer kind of inter in what's the phrase, the kind of the, the, the reliability of, of two pathologists looking at key 67 is not sort of, you know, brilliant. We know it's not a perfect marker. And, you know, this is recruited nearly 900 patients across Europe, multi-center study. I think it removes some of the sort of biases involved in sort of who goes into these studies. And so I sort of take it on face value, really. I think, you know, the frontline setting, it's probably not an unreasonable proportion um, with those caveats about Key 67. So, yeah. Well, I have a lot more questions to ask you. We didn't even get a chance to talk to talk about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, although I feel like DLBCL probably had its time in the sun at last, Ash, so um, <laughs> won't be too offended that we didn't spend that much time on it this year. But um, a huge thanks for, for coming and joining us and, and doing a little mini Ash debrief. It was really great uh, to have you on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.